Good morning, church. Wonderful to be with you today. Thank you, Sean, for, uh, for thanking uh, Jamie and Tracy. I, I just want to add a note about uh, VBS, a couple of things. First of all, it was our largest attended VBS ever, the largest volunteered VBS ever, and I understand that about two-thirds of the families participating don't even go to this church. So I would say God was glorified by what you did. Thank you again, Tracy and Jamie, for mobilizing us to do this. Also, a quick reminder, one of the reasons we do many of the things we do, it, uh, even if we didn't have a bunch of outsiders and all that, uh, I, you know, we talked about this some last year. For me, VBS is first discipleship, before it is evangelism or anything like that. It trains our people to mobilize leadership gifts, to use our gifts in a bunch of different ways. We are trained. We make connections. Every year I've made a connection with uh, a, a new friend, somebody that we knew each other's acquaintances, but when you laugh together and you're goofy together and get wear makeup together and all that stuff, you're going you're gonna to connect. But that's discipleship. Uh, one of the reasons we've got, we've got youth group out to go, we've got college students, we've got folks on short-term missions all around the world. People will sometimes say, well, why do you do that? There's not a huge evangelistic thing. We do those trips for discipleship. Jesus sent his disciples so he would make disciples out of them first. God will take care of the rest. So again, thank you for leading us in this incredible tool that we have about making disciples ourselves first and then inviting other people to experience that as well. I also want to say, happy Father's Day. So all of those here that had the honor and privilege of wearing that title, anybody that's been around as I've preached for the last year and a half know that I will also say this on any day like this. There are some people here that this is a difficult day, and we understand that, and we grieve with you. We want you to know. We, we see that. For some people, you would love to be a father, and you're not able to be that right now. Or others have had horrible examples of the men in your life who wore that title and did not deserve it. So we grieve with you. I will also say, when we do these days, we don't run our church calendar based on Hallmark or based on the government. We run it on the rhythms of the Christ uh, life and on the people of God. And so on this day, yes, we'll use Father Image. I've got a special little gift for you, so to speak, to, uh, to, to, to weave into that. But the main focus, both on Mother's Day, the maternal love of God, and on Father's Day, we want to point in the direction whether you had a great dad or you had a horrible dad, let's point in the direction of the father that our hearts long for. And that's what we're doing here. We're going to look at our father, God, and we're going to do it through this story we've been going through, this odd little story in the Old Testament. We're calling the series Grace Beyond Borders because it expands this, it's over the top book. It keeps expanding our vision of where grace will show up in the heart of our father, God. And we started a couple weeks ago in chapter one and we showed that the calling of God and the purpose of God will show up in really surprising, crazy, absurd places and ways. And he calls this prophet of God's people to go preach a message of warning to the most brutal, oppressive empire in the world at that time. And enemies of the people of God. God was putting into practice, long before Jesus would say these words, love your enemies. By the way, God didn't become a Christian somewhere between the Old and New Testament. That's always been his heart. And he has this book in the Old Testament to remind us it's not just about his people. They were called to be a blessing to the world. And he is going to challenge this prophet to do this. And this guy absurdly tries to run away. We know he can't run away from God. He knows that. He's trying to run away from the purpose of God and the calling of God. And that didn't go really well. Last week we saw 
the gift of God in strange places. We call it liminal space, a fancy word for saying those in-between times of our lives, those belly of the great fish moments where you are not where you were and you're not where you want to be and you're stuck, it feels like. And here's part of the gift of God. God shows up in those places, not just when he gets you through. And we saw that. And so now I want to come to what I believe is, and I've also titled this. It's a, it's a crazy thing to title a sermon, the worst sermon ever, but that's what I've done. I hope I don't live up to that. But I want to read to you what I believe is the worst sermon ever preached, at least by an Old Testament prophet. It's included in this story. So we're going to pick it up here. This is... Um, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. As always, when we read from Scripture, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll see it literally is that. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh, that by decree of the king and his nobles... Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Think with me for a moment about this. What is, in your memory, the worst sermon you've ever heard? I hope it hasn't been in the last year and a half, but it's possible. <laughs> the worst sermon ever. I, I think... Um, I think of some in my own experience, personally doing them, and I think of some that I've experienced. I, I remember it was, it was not that long ago, it was a few years ago, it was not here, but uh, I, I poured my heart out, preached a sermon, had, had this, this really older gentleman, good man, that is known to be particular from time to time. He came up to me and started out like he was going to give me this wonderful compliment. You know, he said, I've heard 60 years of preaching, and he said, that was the worst sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> Like, whoa, okay, all right. <laughs> um, I, that's not the one that, that comes to my mind as much. Um, I, I think for me personally, I, look, I've been through seasons of bad preaching. Um, but I, I, one that sticks in my mind is a really odd one. It, I was young, it was before I was even in full-time ministry. And after college, had a wonderful experience of, of faith growing in our college ministry. And I went back to our church that I grew up in. Preach my heart out, preach this sermon. There's a couple things that happened. First of all, this guy came up. I used an image of Elvis Presley in some way or another. This guy came up. He was offended because I'd picked on Elvis. <laughs> That's not what it made it bad. Here's, I know this sounds odd. Here's why, it, for me, it felt like the worst sermon I ever preached. I wasn't nervous at all. I know that sounds really weird, but I wasn't nervous at all. 
I've done this a long time. Every time I get, I get antsy, and I actually need that a little bit. I mean, it helps me depend on God more, and I, that energy, I use that, and all of that. I didn't feel anything, and it felt that flat. It was horrible. I mean, it was just a bomb. That's one that I preach. First worst one I ever heard, I remember, uh, of all things, we had a guy that we, we didn't have a youth group big enough to have a youth minister, but there was a guy in his 20s that was helping out. And he said, Dean, I've got to go to the West Coast. Uh, he had some business to do, but also he was in his 20s, wasn't married yet, and somebody was setting him up on a potential blind date. And he said, hey, do you want to go? And we'll like double date with somebody in the church, like church setting him up. I'm like, sure. And on the way, we go out there, and, um, and he said, we're going to go through Las Vegas. <laughs> We went to the good parts of Las Vegas. Okay, so we went there. And by the way, if you don't like do crazy stuff, you can eat like volumes of food for like really cheap. And so we did that and all that stuff. Um, but here's what I remember. One of the days we were there, it was either Sunday or Wednesday. I think it was Sunday morning. And we went to church. Yes, we went to church in Vegas. And I remember sitting there thinking, what message is the servant of God going to bring in this place, in Sin City? How is the gospel going to be preached? And I'm not making this up. Do you know what he preached on? The book of Hebrews, and he preached on the King James of this verse, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And his point was, if you don't come Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, you're in danger of the fire's hell. I'm not making it up. I thought, what a missed opportunity. You're sitting in the middle of a city that cries out to hear the heart of the grace of God, that cries out for someone to point out how vastly superior the purpose and the passion of God is to all of the counterfeit gods that are out there. And we heard a sermon on church attendance to the very people you didn't need to preach to. <laughs> it's horrible. And I believe what we just read in this passage is the worst sermon ever preached, as far as I can tell, by an old Testament prophet. I'm not talking about the false prophets. I'm saying the least one that was trying to do it somewhat right. It was horrible. One more place, if you remember, if you weren't here the first week, we used this language from a guy named Eugene Peterson who said one of the reasons he appreciates Jonah being in the Bible is he is a companion in our ineptness. So for anybody that's ever tried to do something well and failed, or did it maybe not fully like the way that their heart was intended to do, then, then Jonah once again is a partner in our pathetic nature <laughs> in this place. But here's the way I want us to think about it. Even in this part of the story, and really this whole book is kind of odd in some ways, what we see, it's not about Jonah. It's about revealing the heart of our Father God. And I, I want to see a couple of things even in this odd place of the story. In fact, a way to do this, I want to think about it this way. I, I just want to do a quick gratitude list through the story. You, you know this, right? That this is actually a practice. Some people kind of laugh it off. Did you know it's scientifically proven? That if you take the time to physically write out your gratitude on a regular basis, a daily basis, a regular basis, you will be measurably more healthy. Emotionally, physically, they've actually studied this. There is something about, I could give you some scientific stuff behind it. But, so I want to do this. Even in an odd story, in the worst sermon preached, I want to think about for a moment some things that I'm grateful about our Father God that is revealed in the story. The first thing you get is in the first verse of the text. And here's the first thing I want to say. Thank you, God, for second chances. Don't you thank our God for that? Thank you, God, for second chances. What does it say in verse 1? Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, what? A second time. 
Now, anybody that's seen where Jonah has been up to this point, and believe me, we got the high point of Jonah last week. He does repent and turns a little bit, begins a transformation, but you'll see he is not there. Jonah up to this point has been a train wreck of a prophet. God calls him to go to his enemies. I gave you this kind of visual picture, now I just kind of acted out. To go up here, and he goes all the way off the map to run away from God. He's a train wreck. The word of the Lord already came to him. Go and warn uh, your enemies here, and he runs the other way. He is going to be, when we see next chapter, it doesn't wrap up in a nice, neat bow. It does for the character of God, not for the character of Jonah. This guy's a train wreck. And listen to me. God doesn't stop calling him to his purpose. God doesn't stop inviting him to be the best Jonah that he could be in the hands of our God. By the way, that's what God is trying to do when he calls us and he calls us back and he calls us back. God doesn't step into our lives and redirect us just when we break a rule. That's not what he's trying to do. Our God longs for us to be the best us we can be. And that's individually and that's collectively. He does it for Israel. I called you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And they kept missing it. And he kept calling them back and back and back. He calls families to be the best families they can be. He calls churches to be the best churches they can be. And don't you thank our God. He doesn't stop calling us back. I thank God for second chances. Often, I've, just, I've let the book of Jonah just dance in my mind with the character of Jesus. You see it a thousand ways. My favorite place is with Peter. This really odd story at the end of the book of John where Peter comes up, John, Jesus comes up to Peter and asks him, do you love me? But he asked him not once, not twice, but what? Three times. And if you're like me, sometimes I'll do a fuller sermon on this. I'll just tease you with this a little bit. Growing up, I was told the whole point of the story is that Jesus changes the Greek word for love, and it's all about that different word. And I will never forget the words of my Greek and New Testament professor in seminary who said the only problem with that is nobody told John. John uses the words interchangeably. Yes, we can do those things in Christian history and elsewhere in the Bible with those words, but that's not the point of the story. In fact, we, we actually turn it upside down. It's almost as if we're shaming Peter. Well, do you even love me a little bit? That's not what our Lord is doing. Why does Jesus ask him three times to say with his own mouth the words, I love you? Because three times with his own mouth, he denied even knowing Jesus in the pinnacle moment of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus, in the heart of this God, said, I'm going to give you a chance to get it right this time. Isn't that awesome? Our God gives us second chances. Dear, dear friend in my life, we'll call him Andy, that's not his name. One of the most godly men to this day that I know, he's in his late 80s, he just exudes the life of God. But he's told a story often, decades ago, he was in jail for embezzling money, I believe it was. But God transformed him in that liminal in-between space to be the man of God he is today. His goal in life is to be someone, and he has this Hebrew phrase from one of the Psalms that he reads often, his goal in life is not just to pray, but to be prayer. How about that? 
That his, he is so connected to God, his life itself is prayer. Anybody that knows Andy, that's the way he is. But if you will ask him, what is it that drives you to still in your late 80s to weep over the goodness of God? He will tell you, because I am grateful that my God keeps giving second chances. Thank you. Thank you for that nature of our God. Here's the second thing I would write on my gratitude list from this story Thank you, God, that God's impact vastly exceeds human ability. <laughs> you ever thought about this? Have you ever been called to something? You're invited to do something, or you feel uh, the, the sense of trying to help in some place, and you can't do it? I love that God's impact on our lives and the world around us vastly exceeds human ability and, in this story, human effort. Here's a way to think about it. I, um, I heard a teaching on this. Anybody's heard the, uh, the Bema, B-E-M-A podcast that talks about kind of the Jewish perspective on things, does it just a drive-by of the book of Jonah. But they, they mentioned one thing I thought was really powerful. They said, think about this. The job of a prophet is to be poetic and artistic. You know this, right? If you look at your Bibles, 90% of the stuff in the prophets are set off in poetry, because they are. They're Hebrew poetry, or they're songs. They're poetic. Their example, and I'll give one of mine, their example is the book of Amos, right? You go to Amos. Amos is the guy who said, let justice roll like a river, and righteousness like never-ending streams. So poetic. That Martin Luther King Jr. wanted to put into words the Christian vision of civil rights in this country. He chose the poetry of the prophet Amos. Or I think of Ezekiel or Jeremiah who weren't content just to speak the message. They embodied it. They actually acted it out in good VBS fashion. They acted out the story. Ezekiel laying on his side at times, playing toy soldiers. A cool story in there. Jeremiah modeling and molding the clay and messing it up and starting over. Here's the point. Prophets are poetic and artistic, and we've seen that Jonah has the ability to do that. Go back and read chapter 2. He's a poet in the middle of the great fish. In my distress, Lord, I cried out to you and you answered me. It's a poem. It's a song. You ready for his sermon to his enemies? 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overturned. 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 That's what he does? He's not even in it. You might say, oh, sure, you're just reading stuff into it. Read the next chapter, we'll get there. He doesn't want it to work. (laughs) He's kind of almost mumbling it. By the way, he doesn't even fully say it. I think he's deliberately ambiguous in this text. If you notice, if you're reading the NIV, I changed the word there because I want to translate it uh, literally. 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. That word can mean destroyed, and a lot of our texts uh, translate it that way. It could also mean transformed. So in the book of Genesis, it means destroyed after the aftermath of Sodom and Gomorrah. But in Psalm 66, verse 6, here's the word, again, playing off of what we practiced in VBS, It says God turned the sea into dry land. He transformed it. So Jonah accurately preaches the message with actually no passion at all, but he preaches the message. You got 40 days and something's going to (laughs) happen. Either this place is going to be blown up or you will be transformed. And that's all he says. It is the worst sermon ever. And it works. It works. 
more on that in a moment, but it works. And listen to me. Aren't you grateful that the work of God is not dependent on human ability? And sometimes even effort. If you think you can save or rescue yourself, if you think you can make purpose in your own life, try again, you'll end up in the guts of liminal space. It won't happen. But aren't you grateful there is a God whose impact on your life and the world vastly exceeds our human abilities and efforts? Just ask the little boy. And there were 10,000 people who wanted to eat. And he came up to Jesus and gave them the equivalent. We don't always realize this. The equivalent of two sardines and five biscuits. Handed them to Jesus. And what in the world is a kid's lunch going to do with 10,000 people? But in the hands of Jesus, the ability and power of God to make an impact vastly exceeds human ability. When it's well-spirited like the little boy or when it's not like Jonah, isn't that glorious? And I don't know about you, but especially on Father's Day, I need to hear that. Because I never will be the father I want to be to my kids. I try, and I'm a decent dad, but I'm never everything I want to be. Has anybody ever thought about parenting by the grace of God? You do. And your ability to love your children will vastly, the impact of that when you are in the hands of God will vastly, vastly, impact more than your human abilities naturally would. And that's true for the people that you look around in your life, man, I wish I could make a bigger difference in this. Give your lunch to them. Give even, even sometimes the half-hearted efforts is all that we can conjure up. God says, I will take that and I will use it and the impact will be great. Isn't that amazing? Last gratitude, then I have something special. Once again, same lesson we learned in chapter 1, but in a different way. I thank God that the grace of God shows up in incredibly surprising places. The life of God shows up in places and among people we could never imagine. In chapter 1, we were looking for obedience and worship and a little bit of just human dignity in the life of a prophet and a saint, but instead we found it in pagans and sailors. That's where we found it in chapter 1. Where do you find the model of being all in? Jonah's like, okay, I'm obeying, but I'm half-hearted there. What about all in obedience? You get that from, of all people, the most oppressive and tyrannical empire in the world at that time. They become a model of repentance. A couple images of this. In verse 5, it says language that if you read through your early part of your Old Testament, will jump off the page. It said, the Ninevites believed God. Really important language in the Old Testament. The one that we now know is the father of faith. Three different faith traditions all go back to this guy. His name is Abraham. And a defining moment in Abraham's life is a moment where God says, I'm going to give you kids. You're an old man. You're well past impossible. Your human ability is, is unable to get there. But I'm going to give you kids, and you're going to I'm going to bless the world through you. And it says, Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God says, I don't need your performance. I don't even need your obedience necessarily. If you trust me and trust where I'm going, you're on the right direction. And Paul will pick up on that to say, 
just so you know, the grace of God and the people of God, the children of Abraham, show up not just in church buildings and not just in Jewish heritages. It will show up in anyone who chooses to trust the God of the story. And the Ninevites believe God, and they don't half-heartedly obey. Do you see this? They are all in. It's incredibly powerful. They go all in in this moment. In fact, part of what I think they're doing here is they're actually banking on what little they know of the character of God. They're banking on God's character, listen to me, not Jonah's message. A friend of mine pointed out one of his favorite lines in this text. I may enjoy it for a different way than he does. My friend Chris says, um, it's verse 9, I believe it is, where uh, they say, who knows? But if we turn to God, he might turn to us. That language of turnings in both of those words. Who knows? God may relent. He's going this direction, but he may go a different direction. We turn. Who knows? Powerful statement there, isn't it? By the way, the who knows turned out in a good way for the people who asked it here. It doesn't always. David asked that same thing about a little boy. He was praying for his life. Who knows? And it didn't work out. It doesn't always work out the way we want. Who knows? And here's what strikes me about this part of the story. The reason they have to ask who knows is because Jonah didn't tell them. That's what bugs me about Jonah in this story. It's why it's the worst sermon ever. Jonah hints at it, but he does not tell them. Who knows that God might be gracious if somebody calls out? You know who knows. Jonah does. <laughs> he just experienced it. In fact, if you don't believe me, he will tell you in the next chapter. He knows. And he does not tell them. He hints at it. He grumbles about it. He puts it out there, and it's left to these desperate people to say, perhaps, perhaps there is a God who is gracious when we cry out in distress. They depend on what little they know of the character of God, not even God's people in this moment. And it's crazy by the end of the story. They model repentance for us, by the way, because everybody's in the cows fast. Did you get that? The cows repent like animals can't eat. And they show what it looks like to give wholehearted devotion and turning in the direction of God. And here's what I love. The story ends with God doing what God always does to the cry of a desperate heart. He turns right back to them. Even them. God shows up in incredibly surprising places. You guys know that oh, I love to um, invite people that embody stories to me. Uh, to share this. So I want to do that now. On Father's Day, I want to ask someone who is a model father in our spiritual community to come up. Dan Warden, would you please come up? I, uh, I asked him to think about a couple of questions about this text. And uh, I want him to reflect on this. For those that don't know Dan, Dan is an incredible servant of God, has been for many years, including formally at this church, but informally for a long time. So, uh, so, Dan, we talked about this a little bit. The first thing, I just got two questions, and you, you reflect on them, and then I have one more little thing I want to do here. But uh, first of all, as we think about this, what, uh, what are you impressed with when you think about the character and the nature of God as Father that comes out in this story? Well, thank you for the opportunity to I love it. answer that question. I've thought a lot about it. I'd like to start with an illustration about an opportunity that I had to hear uh, a very popular Afro-American Afro that spoke in Amarillo one time. The whole city came to hear him. 
the churches got together. His name was Marshall Keeble. Mm -hmm. And he started his sermon by saying, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Then I'm going to tell you. And then I'm going to tell you what I told you. <laughs> and I'd like to start my lesson today with that to answer your question. That uh, the answer is that God is a, a loving God. And he's full of love and grace and mercy for all people. Mm. And some of the worst people of that day were the people of Nineveh. Mm -hmm. And Jonah would love to have seen them uh, not repent. Yeah, that's right. In fact, I, I kind of think that maybe when he was going around preaching that short sermon, 40 days and you've had it, yep. I think he did it with a smile. <laughs> yes. I think he hoped that <laughs> God good. would destroy them because yes. uh, he's the very first uh, Jewish Hebrew prophet that was asked to go speak to an entirely Gentile nation. Yeah, well said. And it was a tough job. The, the passage seems to be full of, uh, of, of great things. Not only is God a great, loving, giving God, but there's, there's other things. There's the great city, there's a great wind, there's a great fish. And if you don't mind me ad-libbing a little bit, there's some other great things like... Uh, uh, there was a great uh, sleep. <laughs> Good point. The only one I know of in the scriptures that could sleep through a storm was Jesus when he was with the apostles on the Sea of Galilee one time, sleeping in a storm. But he had a deep sleep uh, in the belly of a boat and ended up in the belly of a great fish. And then there's a, a great bellyache and the great vomit of Jonah upon dry land. Yes. And he, uh, he had a great message. And I think that he was greatly surprised. <laughs> I think you're right. And disappointed when God didn't do what he said he was claiming to do if they didn't repent. I think that message to them came across as, we've got to obey God. Mm. Yep. They knew about God. Right. They knew how ugly they their lives were and we know the same thing about ourselves don't we we know that uh, we need God to see us through and when he gave this great message there was a great response mm -hmm. uh, you know we talked about it earlier uh, there's a phrase at the very end of this book that uh, there were 120,000 people who didn't know the right hand from the left hand. Now, I don't know too many people that don't know the right hand from the left hand, uh, except for babies, maybe children. And if there's that many children, multiply that times uh, two, mother and father, and you add another child or two, and you've got maybe close to a million people. I'm talking about a lot of people. Yep. And the scripture says that when this message was presented, all, right. all of the Ninevites put on sackcloth, right. which is a horrible garment to wear during times of mourning, and, didn't, and they proclaimed the fast. And when the king heard about what's happening, he did the same thing. And he said, I want everybody not to eat or drink and wear sackcloth on all the people and 
the beast, all the animals. I kind of smile when I thought about that. Wouldn't it be funny to see a goat <laughs> or a donkey wearing sackcloth and not being allowed to eat or drink? Right. But God uh, had a part in that. God is a great God, and he gave a great response to his message. Mm. He caused those people, I don't know, maybe some of them actually see the, the, the great fish vomit Jonah out upon the land. I do know that when the sailors threw him overboard, they didn't want to do that. They tried to save themselves, but they, Jonah said, you've got to throw me overboard. They made, uh, especially uh, later on, they made uh, a worship and vows. Yep. And I wonder if some of those vows had to do, we're going to have to tell mm. Uh, the Ninevites, maybe they were a part of the message givers too. Interesting. You remember that when the early church was being persecuted in Jerusalem in chapter 8 of Acts, uh, all except the apostles went everywhere preaching the word. Mm. Preaching the word evangelistically, you know, right. evangelistically, my. Yeah. You know, it, it was a every, well, if all except the apostles, that included wives and children they probably had some kind of a message about they didn't have you know the letters of Paul or James maybe not even the gospels at that time they probably had a song like Jesus loves me this I know <laughs> for the Bible tells me so so even the children if all left Jerusalem except the apostles and went everywhere sharing the word you can see how fast the church grew and in Colossians we learned that the whole world, every creature had heard the word in that early time of the church. I wish we could do that today. With all the technology, we have, ought to be able to reach the whole world if they did it without the technology we have today. So, uh, you know, something kind of happened to me with regard to uh, God uh, giving us opportunities to uh, do something for him when my opportunity of being the minister here uh, dissolved and I entered into the field of selling life insurance, it's a misnomer, it's death insurance, but it, death insurance doesn't sell very well. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, hilarious. Uh, I uh, was able to uh, come in contact with a lot of people and uh, continue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them everywhere that I went the best I could and uh, eventually I ran across a, an ad in the paper and it had uh, a request for applications to be submitted to be a chaplain for the largest uh, youth prison in the state hmm. it was called Hamilton State School right here in Bryan Texas and I made application had all the necessary prerequisites there and uh, I became a chaplain for Hamilton State School and I had a chance to work with uh, as many as 500 to 600 young men mostly teenagers aged 10 through 20 were committed to the Texas Youth Commission they did the same kind of crimes as the adults and murder included and yet I had the opportunity to and the freedom to share the gospel with them and uh, had an opportunity to baptize over 383 of them there. God. Later got to go to Gettings State School and serve there for a couple of years. And they have 
both men and women there are boys and girls and uh, another 45 were led to Christ and, and received him uh, in baptism mm. and then in between those two I had an opportunity uh, to work with a nonprofit group that sponsored a chaplain for the Brazos County Jail and over 700 people responded to the gospel message and I accommodated their baptisms wow. into Christ. So within a 20 year period, you know, about 1,200 people added to the Lord because <laughs> I answered an ad wow. that God placed before me. Yeah. And I could have rejected making that application, yep. but I would have missed out on one of the greatest blessings mm. and one of the the most beautiful, uh, receptive, not everybody receives a message behind bars, that's sure. true. But so many, they've lost everything. Ah. Well, that shows that it fits that whole theme of the story, that God answers the cry of the desperate mm -hmm. heart. And sometimes people in that situation are more open to it. Well, we talked, the, the other question I was going to ask you is, is, talk to us about how you've seen in your life and experience the God of second chances. Okay, well... By the way, I might mention that a man with the last name of Warden is God's sense of humor. <laughs> to be in a prison. Isn't that great? <laughs> I love it. I could always guarantee an amen when I said, I hope I'm the only warden you have to deal with. <laughs> but to, ask, to answer your other question, when I was eight years old, I decided I wanted to be a preacher. Hmm. My hometown church minister was... Carl Spain. I wanted to be a preacher like Carl Spain. And when I uh, eventually ended up going to Abilene Christian College, well, I majored in Bible and took every course he taught. Hmm. By that time, he was a teacher there. I understand he was a minister of university Epson. students okay. where you were at one time. Yep. But anyway, uh, it was a, an opportunity to uh, give God a chance to work in my life when uh, I was able to start a ministry and uh, in Amarillo, Texas, and then eventually got an invitation to come here in 1967 to preach. And through those years, the, the Lord continued to let me grow. And I got to watch this congregation grow from about 300 people to 1,200. And members just... Uh, Aggies for Christ and so many things. We had a school of the world evangelism. And uh, in 1979, I uh, had a dream because I'd always been convinced that that Christian youth camps and of which I'd have been a part and Christian education were important because I went to Abilene Christian and that's where I met my wife. We met in band and started making music together <laughs> and. Uh, and making music month, ever since? Yeah, last <laughs> month we celebrated our 64th anniversary. Wow, congratulations. With five children in our family. And we had, uh, I, I just felt like that Brazos County needed a, a good Christian school. Mm. And I got a number of people interested in that. And I went to three congregations of the Church of Christ and asked if we could have some facilities donated. And I got a no in all of those. And... I kind of gave up, but the, one of the ladies that associated with me in the interest of a Christian school, she wouldn't give up, and she found a local congregation that would allow us to come in and use their facilities. And 
Brazos Christian School started with 14 students, wow. two of which were our youngest sons, wow. Jonathan and Timothy. Wow. And this, this story will help me answer yeah. your second question about second chances. Right. Uh, <clears throat> Timothy went ahead and became a, a student of the School of World Evangelism that I helped start here. And he went to the Philippines, came back, had left his heart over there, had reverse culture shock. Mm. We helped him raise his funds. He went back in his congregation, supported Timothy in the mission field. He's been there since 1989 now. Wow, crazy. So quite a while. But Jonathan one day came to me, and he'd been through the Christian school at Brazos Christian through the eighth grade. That's as far as they went for a while. And uh, he came to me one day later on after he was in Consolidated High School and said, Dad, can I go and live with your sister who lives in Waco and her husband? My sister is Wanda Ship, and she married Buddy Ship. And they had a house. They had two boys that attended Waco Christian School. And uh, he said, can I go live with your sister and go to Waco Christian School with your cousin or his cousins? And I said, no. Not without us. Amen. And so we, so we didn't sell, but we rented our house out in Southwood Valley to some Aggies and moved to a garage apartment behind where my sister lived. And we bonded with, uh, with Jonathan uh, for two years while wow. he did his junior and senior years at Waco Christian. When he graduated, well, I was still using some insurance, uh, health insurance, and we got leads for people, and I got a lead in, in uh, Mahia, Texas. It's only maybe 40 miles east of Mahia, I mean, east of Waco. And here I was in uh, Mahia, Texas, and uh, I walk into this jewelry store. I had as a lead a lady that was the daughter of the man who owned the jewelry store. She was on the phone, so I, I started conversing with the, the owner, I didn't know it at the time, but he was an elder of, a, of the church there. And he didn't know me from Adam. <laughs> but he leaned across the, the, the counter and he said, are you a member of the Church of Christ? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, but why did you ask that question? He said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know because... I went on to tell him that my son had just graduated from Waco Christian. We were moving back to Bryan College Station. I was going to send a resume to churches in about a hundred mile radius of Bryan College Station to see if I could become another full-time preaching minister. He said, well, why don't you give us one of your resumes? Well, I ended up eventually being a preacher in a full-time preaching ministry in Mahia. A second chance. There you go. Conversation in the bank. Isn't that beautiful? Thank you, Dan. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you, guys. I want to end with a, with a, final, a final thank you for a, a prophet, lowercase p, and a preacher who got it right. I think it's good to talk about folks who get it right. Here, here's a way to think about it. When, when first walked into this building... Uh, we came down, didn't know whether we'd come here or not. Honestly, didn't think we would. We were, we were at a place we'd been at 16 years, but we were open to discern. 
And we were having a conversation with a group of folks, including the elders. And, uh, uh, you know, the way I have conversations in a church setting, I'm, it, it's not an interview in my experience. It's you, you discern together. Is it fit or not? And so um, I just said, let me start by telling you all the reasons not to hire me. <laughs> and there are many. And I laid it out. And then one of our elders uh, had a beautiful response. He said, now let me, let me tell you all the reasons not to come. And then he said, I'll, now, then I'll tell you the reason I think you should. But one of the ones he mentioned, he said, I want you to know that in this congregation, we have several people who used to be preachers and used to be elders. And he said, what that means is in every Sunday that you preach, there'll be a bunch of people out there thinking they could do it better. <laughs> now, here's the honest truth. There are. There are. Every week. Uh, many of you, whether you got a title or not, could do, do better than this. But that's... That's why I say that story. I say that because since I've been here, my experience has been anything but that. The people who have worn the titles of preacher and elder in this church before have been some of the most godly and, and greatest blessings in my personal life. I, I won't mention all of them, but just some that come to my mind. Al, Al Jolly, uh, the Jerrys, Jerry Hogan and Jerry Brewer, Brewer, Curtis Garrett, Gary Adams, Bill Jackson, people that have been blessings and encouragement and nothing but and of course my friend Dan Warden who still to this day I, I tricked him to be up here I wanted him to preach but I also wanted to honor him as someone who models a, a spiritual father to our church and to people in in my life personally when we first came here it was really hard you guys that have been here know that uh, it's hard enough just to move. That wasn't the big deal. Right before we left, my mother-in-law died suddenly. Um, and all these other things happened. I mean, we got COVID. Everyone in the family got COVID. We had a snowstorm. We just couldn't get up here. Our stuff got, like, misdirected, so we couldn't get that here. Melanie's trying to fix everything. Our cat died in our arms on the way to the veterinary. I mean, just was like a country music song. It was, <laughs> Other people have it worse. I'm not talking about that, but it was just really hard. When we got here, the only two of us that were able to come initially were me and Luke. And I was a mess. You guys know me. I was a mess. And we were feeling homeless in every way. And Dan and Meriden said, you know what? You don't have your stuff. You've got a house, but you don't have stuff. Why don't you come stay at our cabin? And at least you have a place that you can sleep. And, and I'll... I know it seems like such a small thing, but I will never forget this day where I was just, it was a horrible time, but it was just, I was feeling so broken that day. And we're sitting at this cabin and I remember this day, Dan, you may or may not remember this, but I got the panoramic picture over on the far right is the cabin, Rex's house in the middle. And um, really hard time in Luke's life. Dan took the time to just bring some stuff so that he could show Luke how to feed the ducks in the backyard. And it was just a moment of light and hope and grace in the middle of a storm. <clears throat> this is a prophet and a preacher who got it right. And Dan, what you inspire me to think about in a story like this, let's not leave it to the Ninevites, whoever they are to tell the story of the goodness of God. Let's not hint around. Let's not hold back. Let us live our lives as you have. Telling the story of a God who gives second and third and 80th chances, that doesn't mean you abuse that. It means God will always take you back, and then God will magnify your impact 
in incredible ways. Thank you, Dan Warden, for the impact of the body of Christ that you have had. Can we thank him one more time for serving us? That's Dan to pray for us, pray a blessing on our church, and pray us out. Oh, loving Lord, praise to you who allows doors to close in order that you can later open them for even greater services to you. Thank you for the closed doors that my family and I have experienced through the years. It's given us the test of faith in you to trust you to turn our hallelujah anyways into hallelujahs in your time and in your way. As a father, a grandfather, a great-grandfather, I've always known the value of my example and influence on those who have looked to me for family leadership. Thank you for your example as our Heavenly mm -hmm. Father, showing us the importance of loving and serving others in our physical families and even those in the world around us, many of whom are unworthy like the Ninevites of receiving love, mercy, and grace. Maybe even though they might be in prison or other places in the community. Help us to learn from you how to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We accept this challenge in the powerful name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.